Good evening. Goodbye Forever, Volume 2 by Nakchang Rinpoche, Chapter 20, Part 1. As You Like It. Just before the Easter recess, I heard that Gyalwa Karmapa would be giving teachings at Samiling, but that the spaces available were limited. He was also to give the Vajra crown ceremony again with additional empowerments, so naturally I decided to go. I sent my cheque and there was space for me at Samiling. The ladies of Hotwells were going to their respective homes for Easter and each had vaguely intimated that if I wanted a break I could accompany them. With debt, of course, they hurriedly added but almost as an afterthought, it seemed. Det had no inclination to visit the homes of her friends. The idea that it might be pleasant and interesting met with a slight frostiness that I found slightly perplexing. I got the impression that there was something Det was not saying. I wasn't clairvoyant, but I knew that there was some reason why she wouldn't wish to visit her friends' homes. I decided not to pry. It would have been awkward for me to have made that journey, in any case, in view of my prior engagement at Sammy Ling. I would have had to have gone back to Bristol for my motorcycle, as that would have been my mode of transport for Scotland. Det's response did cause me to ponder, however. It was not simply a lack of interest on Det's part. Had she met her friend's parents and disliked them? I asked the ladies, but no, Det had never met their parents. Then I picked up on what seemed to be reticence on the part of the ladies. I decided not to probe. There was a mystery here that I was going to have to leave as a mystery. I decided that I did not need to know. As the projected stay at Sammy Ling lay in the middle of the three-week recess from art school, I wondered how the cards would fall. An outing to see Shakespeare's As You Like It in Stratford contraindicated any idea of spending extended time with debt. The idea of living in the house in Hotwells on my own, however, seemed ideal. I had no idea what to say to Det anymore. The play, As You Like It, had been just as I liked it, but seeing that play with Det had not. Having to sleep on the floor at the hotel because Det couldn't share anything less than a king-sized bed was the least of the inconveniences. I was happy to sleep on the floor. I'd brought a sleeping bag and mat because I anticipated that eventuality. I would have appreciated a token of recognition for the sacrifice, but she seemed to take it for granted that I was used to primitive conditions having spent time in India. That was not the affront it could have been to some, it was Det's almost constant criticality of what she disapproved of in me. That wore me out. Not 
that I was in such need of approval, but it was enervating having to respond or attempt to converse. I was ashamed of feeling worn out by debt, but at least all I felt was lassitude. There was no anger or even irritation, merely depletion and ennui. When I looked at why I felt worn out, I realised that it was not just that every last vestige of romance was worn out. It was the fact that I was subject to connubial incarceration, a sentence to which I had been convicted by the judge and jury of my own rationale. Being caustically bludgeoned by the opinion that I was a pseudo-philosopher because I'd never studied philosophy, philosophy made conversation more or less impossible. Making any sort of observation on anything other than the weather or the time of day was fraught with the possibility of irritable reactions. My philosophy, where it wasn't Buddhist, was hand-knitted, homemade and generally exploratory. I'd speculate at the drop of a hat on almost anything, simply because life fascinated me. As far as debt was concerned, I was out of my depth with all such theorising and needed to study Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Agrippa the sceptic, Heraclitus, Parmenides of Elea, Xenophanes of Colophon. Debt sure could reel off names. I had no objection to that. In fact, I found it most interesting. When I'd first met Debt, I was reading Aristophanes, and she'd had to correct me for pronouncing him Aristophanes. At first, Debt seemed to like me and my proletarian autodidactic concatenation of concepts, culled from everywhere imaginable. As time went on, however, she seemed to tire of my quaint plebeianisms. I found this curious because Penelope, Merrill and Rebecca were Det's old school friends. They'd attended Badminton Girls' School together. I therefore expected them to have similar modes of intellectual assessment, but no, there was no similarity. I'd shared a house with Penelope, Merrill and Rebecca for over two years, and we'd become close friends with a pronounced appreciation of each other's company. We had endless conversations, and they never seemed to tire of my oblique conjecture on art, culture and society. They'd plunge into any subject with gusto and talk the evening away, day after day without remission. But debt? No. Conversation was bedevilled by her criticality. She could criticise, but she couldn't create. Merrill, having overheard Det berate me for ignorantly philosophising, said, You know, Det's like a music critic who can read music but can't compose. 
There was a time when I would have defended debt and said that she'd had a point. I was an ignoramus in terms of philosophy. The time seemed long gone. I wanted to bid debt adieu, but hadn't done so because I worried about her. I didn't want her thrown into despondency during the run-up to the degree shows. She'd been cruelly jilted during her foundation year, and according to the three ladies, it had almost ruined her life. They'd practically nursed her back to normality, and if it hadn't been for them, debt would not have applied for fashion and textiles at Bristol Art School. She would have immured herself in her palatial bedroom at home. Penelope, Merrill and Rebecca were delighted when debt took up with me. They'd grown to regard me as a valued friend and, after a while, a closer friend than debt. They were now more concerned about my well-being and made occasional inquiries and comments which betrayed the fact that they didn't approve of the way debt treated me. I never complained to them about debt or made any adverse comments about her, but they seemed to have extrasensory perception regarding our relationship. They seemed to know the lay of the land. I could see it in their faces, even when they said nothing. I didn't want to have some kind of off-stage drama with debt, but I didn't feel like pretending that nothing had happened. Something had happened, and there was no turning back. My entire physiognomy was against it now. I didn't dislike debt and could probably still have amusing conversations with her, but there was no amorous future. The thrill was gone. I was singing the song in my room one morning as the ladies were meandering around packing to go home. The thrill is gone, it's gone away for good. Oh, the thrill is gone, baby, baby, it's gone away for good. Rebecca happened to catch the words. Are you just singing that song, Vic, as a song? Or, I mean, or are you singing what the words mean? Caught in the act of feeling what I felt or not feeling what I was supposed to feel, I froze. I stood still for a moment looking at Rebecca and decided that I'd better answer honestly. Well, Rebecca, it's not an easy subject for me to, well, you're friends of debt and we're friends of yours too, Vic. In fact, we're much closer to you than we have been to debt since, well, since quite a while. So anyway, just to let you know that we understand and we're glad. You seem to have come to a decision. Is that how it is? Yes, I sighed. That is how it is, but not till after the degree shows are over. 
I don't want to upset that for debt. But once they're over, I'm afraid it has to be over. As I was speaking, first Merrill, then Penelope appeared in my room, each with a concerned expression. Welcome to the party, I sighed with a lame smile. I think it's for the best, you know, Penelope stated in a subdued voice. It really is. I hardly know who debt is anymore, Merrill shrugged. She's become so crusty and stiff. It really worries me, but you're being trapped with her. That's worried us all a lot more. I thought at one time that she could have gone back to being how she was before that vile sod John Willoughby dumped her for Little Miss Lift and Separate, Rebecca almost sneered. All we can see is that you've been incredibly nice to Det, really unbelievably nice, even though she's cantankerous and argumentative. You'd think she was paying you back for John Willoughby at times, Penelope added. Yes, Merrill agreed, it's true. Det's moaned to us about your irritating philosophising. Earlier on, we wondered if this was something you reserved for her, but then we asked her about it, and all we could understand was that it was the same kind of conversation the four of us have all the time. Yeah, we told her as much, as gently as we could. And that, Penelope said with a shake of her head, was when she stopped coming round to see us as much. She just seemed to withdraw after that. I think she felt betrayed or something. It was as if we'd all colluded to make her the odd one out, but we really couldn't make any sense of what she thought the problem was about having an interesting conversation. It seemed completely loony. Yes, well, her father's a loony, and that's undebatable, Merrill pronounced. I think he turned into Mr Havisham when he lost his wife, and then he seems to have done his best to turn debt into some version of Estella. Oh, how very horrible, Penelope groaned. But how very true. It's uncanny. It is just like Dickens. Maybe a little less ghoulish, I responded. I can't see him accidentally setting fire to himself in a bridal gown. Even though he'd look better in a bridal gown than those grey lounge lizard suits. That broke the tension and the three ladies burst out laughing. The main problem, I continued after the mirth had abated, is, as far as I can tell, that I'm working class. I went to a low-grade secondary modern school and took care of my own cultural education in a weird and haphazard way. That seems to be, in some way, intolerable. I'm some sort of suburban-cum-rural bumpkin with a folio of Shakespeare under one arm and a shoal of blues and rock quotations under the other. 
And, of course, according to Det, one cannot have a shoal of quotations. One can only have a shoal of fish. As if I was not conversant with collective nouns and their usages. One cannot use collective nouns in any manner one chooses. So, interjected Merrill with an upward roll of her eyes, inventing one's own collective nouns is prohibited? It would appear so, I replied. A lummox of sweating boys in the context of sport isn't plausible. And pointing out that Shakespeare coined several hundred neologisms simply led to my being informed that I was not Shakespeare. You don't have to be Shakespeare to coin neologisms. William Thackeray, Alexandre Dumas and Charles Dickens coined neologisms. Most authors do. Lewis Carroll coined chortle. John Milton coined pandemonium. Oh, clever, I laughed. Place of all demons, fabulous. I thought you didn't take Latin at school. I didn't, but I know pan from panchromatic and eum from londinium and demon is fairly obvious place of all demons. I'm impressed, nonetheless, laughed Penelope. I suppose you can guess malapropism. Yes, from Mrs. Malaprop, Sheridan, from Malapropo. Quite, but the reason I mention the word is that debt is sometimes guilty of them. She confused imply and infer, appraise and apprise, disinterested and uninterested, fortuitous and fortunate, meretricious and meritorious. I could go on. I imagine you've noticed that, and I would guess that you've never picked her up on it. Yes, on both counts, but only on the basilisk that I prolix gilded of the shame myself, I grinned. Penelope laughed and I continued, I've misunderstood too many words to juggle anemone and the Elsie. I'm sure I've heard many words that I think I understand because of their context and discover my error later. I mean, of your list, I know I've confused, appraised and apprised in the past. Penelope suddenly looked rather serious and sighed. You were a constant trial to her. I believe I was, but that's past tense now, or will be in a month. Rebecca then shifted the topic. Are there any examples you know of Shakespeare's coinages? Yes, I paused. Let me think. Uh, admirable, blood-stained, blood-sucking, hint, consanguinous, 
blusterer, aerial, amazement, auspicious, barefaced, mortifying, baseless, fashion monger, bedroom, characterless, a pugnancy, chimney top, cold-blooded, cold-hearted, zany, courtship, dauntless, belongings, dewdrop, disgraceful, misgiving, distasteful, moonbeam, downstairs, dwindle, enwrapped, fathomless, fretful, hobnail, howl, inducement, lacklustre, laughable, leapfrog, lustrous, foppish, madcap, malignancy, multitudinous, obscene, pageantry, pendulous, mimic, reclusive, refractory, besmirch, dexterously, castigate, grovel, unfrequented, unrivaled, vasty, yelping, expedience, flowery, rumination, and fairyland. That's it for how many I can remember. There's a list of them I once read. My English teacher, Mr. Priest, showed it to me and I wrote many of them down. That's why I remember them. I could have given you a longer listing years ago.